For those of you with us for the first time, we're in a series working our way through Paul's letter called 1 Corinthians. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're just kind of working our way through, and we are in chapter 4 today. And in this letter, Paul is writing to address several issues in the life of the believers in the church in Corinth. And the first issue he addressed is division in the church, because their division, their lack of unity with one another in Christ, contributes to all the other issues. And so he's spending quite a bit of time on it. And the reason for their division is seen most clearly in their preference for some teachers or church leaders over others. You remember the people are saying, well, I'm more spiritual than you because I follow Paul. Oh, no, 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 no. I have a higher spirituality than you do because I follow Apollos. So Paul diagnoses the cause of their problem, saying that they are foolishly living according to the wisdom of men, which Paul says is powerless, rather than living according to the wisdom of God, which has been given to them by the Spirit of God, so that they can walk in the power of God. So the verses we looked at last Sunday, the verses just before this, chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 5, in those verses, Paul summarizes almost four-chapter argument saying three things. One, they need, to, they need to wake up from their self-deception because it's leading them away from the cross. Two, that they need to see all of Christ's faithful teachers and servants and stewards of the gospel rather than judge them by their celebrity criteria. And then three, that they must boast only in Christ because they are not in Christ. They are in Christ and Christ is in God's. And that's the place where you want to be. That is the summary of Paul's correction to the church. Now in the rest of chapter 4, Paul is strongly rebuking them for their arrogance and calling them to live in the power of the cross and Christ crucified, which means to live a life that's humble, Christ-like living. And that's the big contrast that's the big contrast of what we're going to look at this morning. Humility instead of arrogance. And then at the end of chapter 4, because it is a big deal to Paul, Paul kind of throws down the gauntlet. At the end of chapter 4, he tells them that he's coming to visit them. And their response to his correction will determine which Paul will come to visit them. The Paul who brings a rod of discipline or the Paul who brings a gentle hug. Look at verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21, the very last verse of what we're going to read today. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So let's go ahead and begin reading this section at chapter 6. I applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the Word of God. So let's take a closer look at these verses. If you want to grab your sermon outline, it's broken up into three parts. Paul says, you're arrogant. He says, your arrogance misses the mark, which is the cross. And you need to repent of your arrogance. So look again at verse 6. Here's how Paul starts us out. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul has written all these things. All the lessons here are about God's wisdom being greater than man's wisdom, about Christ's gospel being more powerful than man's fancy talking, about the natural man's folly and the spiritual man's insight, that the church is God's temple and that he will build it his way, not man's way, that faithful gospel ministers are servants of Christ, not leaders to be judged or divided over. He's, he's written all of those things, and he's applied them to one case study, the case study involving him and Apollos, which implies that there are other ways in which the Corinthian church is being puffed up and divided in the church. Paul's just kind of used one as a tool that they need to apply to all of the others. I think it's fair to assume that there are divisions in the church, more divisions, other divisions, perhaps around real leaders in the church. And Paul decides not to name names because this is a sensitive issue. He's showing his pastoral side. And he doesn't want to do more harm than good by calling some people out publicly. Not yet. So he uses himself as a case study. He wants the church to benefit by applying a right understanding of the gospel and of the church and of teachers to all the instances of division that are in the church in Corinth. He wants them to learn not to go beyond what's written he says. You know, so Paul has referenced several Old Testament scriptures, hasn't he? Several Old Testament scripture passages to teach this lesson. The lesson 
that God's wisdom always crushes the folly of arrogant men. Every single one of his Old Testament references shows that. See, the Corinthians have gone beyond what is written about the wisdom of God by adopting culturally approved ways of living. They have gone beyond the wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified, in favor of the wisdom of the age that won't last. They've gone beyond the way of God's building His church with the humble preaching of the cross in favor of man's or a man-focused rhetoric which empties the cross of its power. In their arrogance, they have puffed themselves up, one against the other, and divided what Christ died to unify. Is Christ divided, Paul asked? No. By going beyond what is written in these ways, which is humility before the wisdom of God, they've become arrogant, puffed up against one another, and blind to the prospect that united they have all things. And that's Paul's great concern. It's their arrogance and where it's leading them. I mean, they're, they're like a high school basketball team that's falling apart because all five players think they're all the all-star on the team. A bunch of ball hogs taking shots, never passing. If each player wasn't so conceited and puffed up, they could be an all-star team and win the state championship. Because arrogance is an individual sport. So Paul takes three rhetorical questions to expose their sinful arrogance. Down in verse 7, for you, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Look at question one. For who sees anything different in you? What makes you better than your brothers or sisters in the church? That's what he's saying. Some may be new believers. Some may be mature believers, but all of them have Christ. Some may be drinking gospel milk and others chewing gospel meat, but all of them grow by the gospel. Some serve as teachers, but all serve. Many have different gifts, but, but each has a spiritual gift. Arrogance and conceit and pride, will it'll make you judge others, won't it? It'll affect how you see others and how you behave towards others. And Paul says, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge things that only God is to judge? See, you need to participate in the fellowship of the church body. That's what you need to do. You need to pray for one another as the church body. You need to be involved in one another's discipleship in the church body. You need to serve together as healthy, functioning church body. You need to build up one another in love as the body of Christ. That's supposed to be individual. It's supposed to be a body. Paul is saying that all of you are in Christ and all of you are to look like Christ. That's what you should see in one another. Question two, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have is a gift from God by the grace of God to you. Why do you act like you did it? How arrogant. How foolish. Remember these words, I gave... I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? For all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Everything that he has, everything that you have, you've received as a gift from God. And here's the bedrock truth. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the bedrock truth. The only notable thing about you is that you're a recipient of God's grace. That's what's notable about you. Therefore, question three, if you received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? Why do you act like the natural man whose wisdom and righteousness comes from himself when you are the spiritual man whose wisdom is from God and whose righteousness is from Christ? This is a problem. It's a problem because, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, we've looked at that before. Their boasting is counter to their calling. God has chosen the foolish, the weak, and the poor. You know, like you and me. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The glory is his. And so now Paul digs in. You want to see, you want to see some powerful rhetoric, you Corinthians? Because Paul's going to dig in with some biting sarcasm. Paul reveals the ridiculousness of the arrogance of the Corinthians in contrast to the humility of the apostles. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Do you hear Paul's sarcasm cutting through their arrogance? You guys act as if you have everything already, as if you've become spiritually rich and successful all on your own. You become kings of Corinth, and you didn't need us to get there. You didn't need the foolish preaching of the cross. You didn't need the Spirit to give gifts. You figured it out all on your own. That's what Paul's saying in those words. And what's not written is a big not. Not. Paul says, I wish you were the rulers in this age. Maybe you'd... You know, maybe you lift us up out of our lowly status that you've judged us to be in. You know, maybe you could help a brother out here. If you were as big and spiritual as you say you are. He says, you see us through worldly eyes as a spectacle for crowds to look upon. Like prisoners sentenced to death proceeding into the gladiatorial arena for the world's amusement. That's how you see us. Well, in worldly eyes, we are. But you should be too. That's what he's saying. God has exhibited his apostles 
as last of all. I think for our understanding, we would read that least of all. That's what Paul's getting at. That is, the humble servants. Everybody else comes first, and who's left? Well, these, these humble servants, on display for all to see, they will all die as stewards of the gospel, foolishly preaching the folly of the cross. That's the contrast Paul's making. And, and Paul's not seeking pity, and he's not pitying himself. He's trying to shake these believers awake to see and understand things as spiritual people should see and understand them. The contrast between how the world sees the lowly apostles and how the world sees the boastful Christians, it continues on in verse 10. He, he picks up, he continues the theme. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor. But we're in dispute, disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's describing the apostles. Paul's describing his own life, his own lifestyle, his own way of living. And when we unravel the sarcasm, it sounds like this. Paul says, we have become fools to this world in order to receive the wisdom of God. Why do you settle for being seen as wise by men? That's not true wisdom. True wisdom preaches the gospel of the cross. Paul says, we have become weak in the eyes of this world in order to receive the power of God. Why do you settle for being seen as strong by men? That's not saving power. True salvation comes from Christ crucified. Paul says, we're dishonored in this world because we boast in Christ that we might be honored by Christ. But you boast in men and settle for the honor of men. That's not the glory of having all things. That's nothing compared to being God's holy temple. That's nothing compared to being together in Christ and in God. And, and what squashes the whole thing is that the world always opposes Christ. Hello? The world always opposes Christ. It never commends Christ. So it is other foolishness of a Christian to expect a warm embrace from the world rather than a cold rejection, which is what you'll always get. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the natural person, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, the spiritual person, therefore the world hates you. So the way the Corinthians are living misses the mark. It misses the mark. But the way that the apostles live hits the mark. It nails it. 
Look again at these words, beginning in verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. See, that's what Paul's calling them to do. Paul, Paul isn't rich and successful. He's roughly treated. That word buffeted means to, it means to, to be hit with closed fists. He's not supported by wealthy patrons or paying students like the fabulous orators in Corinth. He, he's got a day job working with Aquila and Priscilla, working with his hands to make ends meet. Paul had no house, kind of the same way Jesus had no place to lay his head. The Corinthians are measuring their Christian lives using worldly standards. They're actually identifying with those who do not belong to God. Do you get that? Hey, we're measuring everything like this. Well, you're actually identifying then with people who do not belong to God. They're aligning their lifestyle of individual success and triumphant superiority superiority with those who actually oppose Christ. Contrast that with how the apostles live and treat others. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Let's think about each of those just for one minute. We don't, we don't like to be reviled. We don't like to be called nothing. You're nothing. When people curse us, our first instinct is to curse them back. No, you're nothing. Paul was cursed in the synagogue in Corinth. We don't have to go far for an example. He was cursed in the synagogue in Corinth. But, but even some of the people in the church in Corinth are now reviling him. You're no apostle. We don't need you. But Jesus says not to return evil with evil. Right? So when Paul is reviled, he blesses. He has an attitude of helpfulness towards them. He does good works for them if he can. Christ has fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant by being a blessing to all people. Remember? Remember that part of the covenant? And Paul is in Christ being a blessing to even those who revile him. If they'll let him. And that's what we're supposed to do. When reviled, bless. That way it wasn't in the Corinthians' thinking. You know, Paul didn't seek persecution, neither do we, neither should we. But Jesus not only prepares us for inevitable persecution, he prepares us by saying this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's a lot in that. When we are outraged when we're inconvenienced for our faith, aren't we? Paul was beaten and whipped and suffered imprisonment for preaching Christ crucified almost everywhere he went. It's pretty inconvenient. And these Corinthian believers, remember back in Acts 18? These Corinthian believers that he's writing to watched the Jews beat the snot out of their fellow believer Sosthenes while the magistrate stood by and did nothing. 
You know, enduring persecution doesn't sound very glamorous, does it? Enduring persecution doesn't sound, doesn't sound very wonderful. Doesn't make the highlight reels. Doesn't sound like success. It's not the it's not the reputation that I want to have. <clears throat> hey, do you guys remember that one guy that that uh, you know he used to come to this church? What was his name? Oh yeah, Scott the persecuted. Whatever happened to him? Often, when we think of persecution, we think of the great martyrs of the faith. But persecution happens for a reason. Because it works. Persecution tends to make believers hide. Or worse, to make them fall away from the faith. That's its intent. These Corinthians not only want to escape suffering for the cross, they want to be well thought of as really spiritual people. They want to go out in, in public like everybody else who worships all their pantheon of gods and say, yeah, I'm a really spiritual person. I just go to a different temple. And so what would they do if they had to suffer the way the apostles did? I mean, they're already suffering a verse. People will laugh at us for preaching the cross because it's folly to them. But the natural person will get downright angry, right? We can, we can go preach the gospel, and most of the time people will say, well, you're just silly. Oh, you're one of those. Well, I'm glad that works for you. But if we went out and said these things, the natural person will get downright angry and violent if you stand in public for the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and the truth that God created us in His image, male and female. Just say those things and see what happens. How can we endure such persecution? Why should we endure such persecution? <clears throat> Because we are God's, and God will not be mocked. Because we have received the wisdom of God from the Spirit of God, so that we have the mind of Christ to see what is true and what is eternal. Because if we will live in Christ's righteousness, which we have received, we will also receive the kingdom of heaven forever. Do the cost-benefit analysis. Slander seems like a small thing after considering persecution, but how Paul responds to being misrepresented, to being slandered and lied about, and being thrown in jail on false charges is no small thing. When slandered, he answers with kindness. Even here in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is offering correction to some in the church who are maligning him. They're slandering him. And he patiently exhorts them to believe what is true. I have no doubt that Paul is praying as he writes for the Spirit to enlighten his readers to, to a right understanding and a movement to living under the cross. You know he's praying as he writes this. He's praying for them to believe Jesus' admonition in the Beatitudes. When Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus just hit the trifecta. Same three things that Paul's talking about. Instead, 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Is there a reward for those who shy away and hide? No. But there's a reward for you. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, that's how the apostles live. And that's living that hits the mark. The cross. In avoiding suffering for Christ and walking around in their pride and arrogance, the Corinthians are living Christian-ish. But Paul is calling them to become what they are and to live like Christians. The real deal. That's what he does next in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you, do not have, you have only one Father. For I became your Father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Paul's biting irony in describing the Corinthians' attitudes and his harsh comparison of their lifestyles is for their benefit. Like disciplining a child. He didn't enjoy spanking them, is what he's saying. He's writing with tough love. Maybe that's how we would describe it. His point is not to shame them, but to admonish them as he would his own children. Because he believes them to be his own children. As the one who planted the church, Paul's their spiritual father. He laid the foundation, remember that? Countless other teachers are building on it. He preached the gospel by which many of them were saved. And so he says here they have many guardians. Really, The, trans, the, the, the translation would be you have 10,000 guardians, but only one father. And Paul loves these Corinthians, these Corinthians, like a father. So he urges them, he pleads with them to imitate him. To follow Paul as Paul follows Christ. That's what he's saying. These Corinthians have been Christians for three or four years now. And they still need help connecting what they know with what, how they live. Because both right belief, we call that orthodoxy, and right behavior, we call that orthopraxy. Belief, practice, both are important. They believe the gospel of the cross, but they're walking. They're not walking in the cross. That's, their orthopraxy needs a little adjustment. It misses the mark because they're accommodating lifestyles from the world. So Paul holds himself up as a model for them to follow. He hasn't been writing about his suffering to shame them, but to show them how to live. And it's not primarily that they have to suffer in order to be good Christians. It is that they have to be humble to be good Christians. They have to put to death their sinful pride and arrogance. They have to lean into and live by the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God. That is what every church of the Lord Jesus Christ does to be a true church. So Paul gives them some help. He sends Timothy to them. Timothy's a faithful, trusted co-worker of Paul's. Timothy was with Paul back in Corinth in Acts 18 when he planted the church. 
And Timothy also came to saving faith through Paul's gospel ministry. So, so Paul calls Timothy his beloved and faithful child in the Lord, just as he does the believers in Corinth. So Timothy's sent off to be one of their guardians for a while. Timothy will teach and admonish and encourage the Christians to walk in the wisdom of God that Paul's taught them. And In effect, he's saying, follow Timothy as Timothy follows Paul, as Paul follows Christ in the Spirit. That's what he's saying. And what we're seeing here is, is Paul's pastoral heart. What love it must take to so strongly admonish these Corinthians in their foolishness and only for their benefit, not for his own personal satisfaction. He's not, he's not disciplining him because he wants to get in a couple of whacks and make himself feel better. And what love he has for his spiritual children in the church to be willing to follow through for their benefit. All parents know that it's consistency in parenting that's the hard part. Paul's following through. Look at verse 18. Some in the church are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out the talk of these people, not the talk of these people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now probably... Those in Corinth, most averse to Paul, think he isn't going to come visit them. And that fuels their arrogance. They think they won't be held accountable by the apostle. But Paul is determined to come if the Lord allows. And when he does, everyone will learn the difference between their talk and real power. The Corinthians are enamored with the words of eloquent wisdom that create Nothing but the temporary applause of men. But the kingdom of God is built by the power of the gospel. The good news of the cross that saves sinners. That's the power Paul's talking about. We must reject our human wisdom, our earthly strength, and our worldly wealth. We must eliminate our arrogance and our pride and our self-boasting. We must humble ourselves before Christ and let the world see us as foolish, weak, and empty-handed. Because before Christ we indeed are. But we have received everything by God. We have received, Paul says, everything is ours. By God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. The question for us is, how do we wish for Christ to come to us today? Would you have him come to you in love with a rod of discipline? Or would you have him come to you in love in a spirit of gentleness? If you're a believer, he will come to you in love. But he will not spare the rod and spoil God's child. We should come in line now. 
with Paul's admonishment to Christian living, putting aside arrogance, being humble, living under the cross, doing that foolish thing of telling people about Jesus, salvation in Christ for their sins, which brings eternal life. See, the key to Paul's correction for the division in the church in Corinth is found in verse 7. It's the Rosetta Stone. What do you have that you did not receive? Brothers and sisters, what do you have that you did not receive? Complete gratitude will erase arrogance. Just say thank you. Consider what Paul has taught us. We have all things in Christ. We have Christ by the Spirit. We have the Spirit by the grace of God. And so just just be the happy receivers of the grace of God. Admit that He's the giver. Because it's in our weakness that we have the power of Christ. It's in our foolishness that we have the wisdom of God. And it's in our lowliness that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are God's church, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together by the grace of God and in the peace of Christ. So let's be who we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace towards us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your constant, faithful, loving presence with us in the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Help us to boast in you that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.